1: Hello, this is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Dr. William Tucker. Bill graduated from Harvard College and from Columbia Medical School, where he is a clinical professor of psychiatry. Earlier in his career as a teacher of psychiatry, he developed an interest in how people learn to manage any chronic medical illness. And he wrote about this process in his first book, How People Change the Short Story as Case History. Later, out of his professional interest in understanding and treating serious mental illness, he served as medical director of the New York State Office of Mental Health, where he learned the effects of traditional institutional care. Thereafter, as psychiatrist for Pathways to Housing, which we'll be talking much more about, he learned how outreach services provided to people where they live can help them take charge even of those illnesses in order to pursue their Individual life goals. He wrote about his outreach experiences in his second book, Narratives of Recovery from Serious Mental Illness. Welcome, Bill.
2: Thanks very much, Gerald. It's very nice to be with you and to get a chance to talk to you and your listeners.
1: Nice to have you here. And I want to thank you for your book. I, I uh, really resonate with with the narrative um, style of lesson giving. (laughs) So uh, the fact that you told the stories of your patients as a way of illustrating what you were talking about really uh, touched me and uh, I felt I got to know some people pretty well by reading about them in your book. So thanks for that.
2: You're welcome. They they taught me too. I uh, uh, felt that they were able to tell about their lives in letting them talk about their lives. I felt I got to know them um, more than in the usual traditional medical framework where one asks a lot of questions and expects kind of structured answers. So I I felt uh, these stories had a great deal of meaning to me as well.
1: You know that, and that that resonates too. With uh, I work a lot with cancer. Um, I run support groups and and various things. And. Uh, that's an environment, a support group is an environment in which I really deeply hear people's stories, and I just appreciate that so much, to, to dive into people's lives like that. It sounds like we have that in common. But I wanted to intersect, uh, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the reason I felt your book would add something to this show, which is that... Um, When people ask me what I do, I say I'm a grief counselor and I say there's always a loss in any issue I'm working with. And uh, an example I've used for a long time is that people with a very serious and biologically based diagnosis still uh, encounter personal losses uh, as a result. And uh, I felt many of the people you talked about were good examples of that, losses of, of family support, losses of community support, um, maybe losses of their, their dreams and, and things they thought they might do in their lives. Um, and so it touched me that these were people who found their way back to those dreams.
2: Yes, that was, that was a theme in, in uh, many of these narratives, uh, Cheryl, as you, as you pick up. They, uh, these are people who had an idea. Of, actually, it, it's interesting. Many, most of them had an idea about their lives, and when they got sick, they fell off the track. They, in other words, um, they uh, were overwhelmed uh, by the confusing experiences that caused them to have to give up things that had meant a lot to them. And and um, when they gradually began to take control of their lives again, they were able to get back on the track. I say most of them because some people had been hit by illness so early that they really never, you know, it was early in their lives, in their early 20s, that they never had a chance to flesh out um, these goals that they had for themselves. One, one of my, uh, uh, I guess, fundamental uh, uh, principles about this is not my idea at all, but is that is that everybody really does have an idea somewhere of who they are and what they want to become and what they want to do with their lives. And oftentimes people won't tell you about this uh, if you just say, well, you know, what do you want to do? What are your goals? Because they've been so discouraged by people not uh, uh, supporting them and criticizing them and saying things like, uh, you know, what makes you think you're able to do such and
1: such? Mm-hmm. Yes. And
2: now, as to, as to what, however, starting with this idea that people do know, I would uh, not open up... Uh, a a meeting with somebody by saying, well, you know, what are your goals and so forth. I would just listen for what they would talk about. And um, as they would uh, again and again, I I saw people for years uh, on at least monthly or twice monthly or sometimes weekly basis. And the themes that would come back again and again and again were the things that I thought, well, now this obviously is important to this person. And so uh, what was amazing to me was, since I didn't know how to get them back on this track, uh, to watch how they gradually, once they articulated it, and once they started trying things, how they worked worked their way back. Some of these stories were quite dramatic.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And um, I I think... You know, they—all the people you talked about—and apparently they represented many others too—showed an incredible amount of what I would have to call resiliency, because you're up against a lot uh, in any way that you don't fit the norm. And right. um, you know including race, including mental illness, including sexuality and gender uh, uh, redefinition and to continue to, to kind of circle back to what's important to you does take uh, you know I, I'm thinking of a lot of clients I have who the the same thing that themes emerge over and over and over again of what would feed their lives and yet they uh, they have a Hard time acting on it and, and giving that credibility. So it really stood out how much your patients did, in fact, end up doing that.
2: Well, I, uh, it's nice that you, that you emphasize that and that you pick it up. You know, the, uh, another, um, I guess, idea of what drove me in this is that there is no difference. Among people, That is to say, we all go about it in the same way. Some of us have been luckier to get more encouragement and more support uh, almost from the beginning and repeatedly in our lives than others. But the, my thought was, since I needed uh, lots of help and support from teachers, from friends uh, along, uh, and others uh, along the way, I thought, well, my patients are no different from me. What they, what they need is what I must have needed and continue to need uh, up to this uh, uh, time in my life, which is encouragement and support and somebody feeding back ideas of what it seemed to them that I was saying or how I looked. You know, one of the things about seeing an old friend, someone that's known you for a long time, is that they can take one look at you and they can say either what's wrong or they can respond Oh, you look fine. Uh, I guess things are going okay <laughs> for you. They 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 just pick it up, and and and, and uh, immediately. So, um, the uh, uh, so my thought was, in my role as a doctor with people, uh, it's absurd for me to tell them what to do. Nobody could actually have told me what to do, but I can at least be there for as a resource. Basically, as a resource mm, to offer. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And my own experiences and what I knew and everything that I was ever interested in. If in one patient, uh, actually, he was uh, as a. Um, he was a semi-professional opera singer, a fellow with serious, uh, um, what's called manic depressive illness. and But, but the fact that, I, and I'm no opera buff, but I've been to opera. Everything you know, every th- experience that you've had comes into this. You kind of get a chance to put your whole personality into this, which is what I like. And so when a person is ready to ask about it or gets curious about it, they ask you and you tell them what you know or what you don't know.
1: Yes. Well, that's uh, what appeals to us about the profession is very similar, um, just to be able to use all of yourself and support people. But you know, that naturally leads us to how you came to do this work. Um, I wonder if you'd share that little bit about how you originally got started, and then we could fill in how you got from there to this community work that you did for towards the end of, uh, of your um, uh, practice career. Yes?
2: You put it exactly, exactly right. In fact, what, even to make it, emphasize it a little more, I would say how long it took me to get on the track that um, ultimately was, was uh, satisfying. You know, little pieces along the way, but it took me a long time. I went to medical school with the idea in my mind, this may sound strange, but the idea in my mind, I wanted to learn how to communicate and talk to and listen to people who were considered out of their minds. Okay? I don't say they huh. were, but that, what they were considered. And uh, I really got some training in that, and I had a, a wonderful teacher uh, particularly who's, who's well-known for, for teaching people about that. He taught us basically uh, to listen to our own feelings in response to the person rather than necessarily to the words the person was or wasn't coming up with. Mm. Uh, that, that our own reactions were not a mistake. They were not an attempt to impose something uh, a false on on what the person was saying, but rather a way of of kind of gathering up the feeling. I know you do this uh, in in your work as well. But the question to me was sort of how do you turn that into a career? And I'm, I'm a slow learner and I, I uh, took a long, so I had a very traditional career. I was teaching psychiatry. I was, started a practice. I did some psychoanalytic training. I did all the things that people in the early 70s who were in training uh, would follow up on. There was nothing personal and distinctive about it. And um, I missed out on an opportunity to do one thing uh, that some uh, people in those days were prescient enough to do uh, who were interested in serious mental illness, and that's go into research and go to the National Institute of uh, Mental Health in, in, in uh, Bethesda. I missed out on uh, opportunities to do that, but I kept getting more chances. It's interesting. My, my story is not different from, from many people's, I'm, I'm sure, um, and, and so... The other thing that you can do, uh, but it took me a long time to figure it out, if you're interested in serious mental illness like this, is you go to work in the public sector of psychiatry. Because um, most people from uh, most families, unless you're fabulously wealthy, people lose their ties, they lose their connection, uh, their families finally give up. Uh, incidentally, which is a reason why this I wrote this book, Most people don't think anybody recovers anyway, and they think people who uh, aren't talking in a clear way or hear voices or whatever it is, uh, that you can't communicate, and they're frightened of people like that, Uh, and it's just to give you a statistic, uh, the public in in studies thinks that 70% of people who hear voices and so forth are dangerous. And in fact, this has been studied over and over and over again uh, prospectively, it's about 1.5% of people. And- of the people who never have a mental illness, it's about 1% of people. So the press then comes and says, well, it's a 50% increase of a likelihood that you're going to be dangerous uh, if you have a serious mental illness. And, you know, the, the, those are the kind of things. <laughs> a
1: it's, kind of ridiculous use of statistics, huh?
2: <laughs> it, it, it's, it's misleading. You know, I mean, we all know that statistics can be misleading. But So, so um, uh, the, the idea was uh, um, h- how to... St- uh, treat people as if they were like me and their experiences were like mine in some far as possible. Now, now what, was, what was difficult was they didn't really believe that that was my goal in this thing. I mean, it, uh, one, one, I guess one benefit of having taken so long to get there was I was pretty clear that I wanted to find out for myself do people recover. This wasn't an academic exercise. It wasn't a research project. It was something for me. I, I was... I wanted to know, it's not just talking to people, it's talking to people so that they can really make, do what they want to with their lives. But what would happen? Uh, I was used to a system, you, you mentioned this a little bit in your opening, where people who are, were controlled in institutions. And you can give them medication and you can make them quiet and you can settle them down. But that's not recovery. Recovery is when you get back on track toward your own personal life goals. And everybody's are different and unique. Everybody's. Um, and so um, the question for me was, you know, would this happen? And I was going to get out there and, and see, in fact, in a non-controlled situation, which is to say in the community, in the real world, Uh, The people that I was working with uh, had uh, we were able to provide regular market rate apartments for them in a working class uh, uh, area of New York City. That is, uh, um, they they, um, it wasn't there wasn't a supervisor there wasn't a staff there. People adults want to live on their own. I certainly would. You would. That's that's what uh, my patients did too. And so, uh, I would I would. but because we were providing the housing, I could go to people's apartments and, and find them and talk to them and go with them to a job interview or go with them to a cafeteria or go with them to their, to their uh, medical clinic appointment for their diabetes or whatever condition they might have. Now, you might think, well, my goodness, uh, what, what if they don't open the door? What if they don't want to see you? What if they're mad at you? And it was just astounding to me uh, um, Nobody refused entry to me in the six years that I worked in this program. The only time I couldn't get into somebody's apartment is a a very instructive story. Uh, The man who had come and seen me every month for about three years and... uh, he would always tell me he was a man who was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia and so forth. Uh, and uh, he mostly wanted to be sort of left alone to live his own life, and he played music and so forth. And every time, and he had been on drugs too, which he had given up, and every month when he would come to see me, he would bring me a bottle of orange juice. And he would say, if I ever stop bringing you this orange juice, you better start worrying about me. It may mean may, may I'm back on drugs. Well, he never stopped, and every month he came. And then one month, he didn't show up, and I knew this was not what uh, ordinarily happened. So I went and knocked on the door, no answer. I went back later on the next day, because I only worked two days a week, knocked on the door, no answer. What had happened was, he had uh, developed cancer, actually, and had a metastasis to his brain from his lungs, as a lot of patients uh, smoke, and um, finally... Um, uh, he had managed to crawl to the door and unlock it. He would always lock it to protect himself. And the staff in the week that I wasn't there uh, got him to an emergency room where I caught up with him the next week. And uh, mm. the, 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 I won't go on more with that story, but it, it's instructive. He's the only person that didn't open the door for me, and it wasn't because he was refusing to do so.
1: That's that's amazing, and it made me think, um, you know, people who get, Uh, ostracized and and thought of ill and uh, people are afraid of them they respond so much to just simple acceptance and and curiosity and interest don't they let's let's come back to that what what uh, because I think we're talking in a sense about um, defining recovery you know, what does that look like? It doesn't always look like right. the voices go away or, you right. know, so let's, right. let's really go into that a bit more after the break. And listeners, during the break, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, all of that stuff, or sign up for my email list. And uh, Bill Tucker, you can reach through me as well. Be back soon.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious. Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reish. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go, on iPhone, Blackberry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, Blackberry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to good grief.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dr. William Tucker author of Narratives of Recovery from Serious Mental Illness. And, Bill, before the break, um, I I mentioned that I'd really like to go more deeply into uh, the idea of recovery because I think the general public might take that word, might uh, interpret it as the end of symptoms or, <laughs> you know... Um, control of uh you know someone who takes their medication regularly any of those kinds of all related to the illness and that is clearly not the way you define it uh you you mentioned earlier it was the person being able to pursue their life goals uh which i think is is an interesting way to put it is there more to it though than that
2: Absolutely. Uh, let me just to back up one step. When I was writing this book, people said, oh, you know, what are you up to these days, Bill, and so forth, and my friends, colleagues, and I would say I'm writing a book on recovery from serious mental illness, and they would pause, and there'd be a pause, and a, and a, and a momentary, uh, uh, a little bit of a gasp, and they would say, "Yeah, but does that happen? Does recovery happen? Hmm. So... Um, um, in fact, uh, and we're going to get right into your question about about the definition, but but it's known by the early a hundred years ago that half three quarters of people recover, many of them just spontaneously, mostly mm-hmm. just spontaneously, and so treatments really are recently are just a way of increasing the the uh, the odds here, but it's not been taught that way, and generations of mental health professionals, not to mention the public, have been taught you know it's a death sentence uh people go downhill uh they uh, only get worse and uh so it's it's really uh, that was one of the reasons to write this to see uh if it was possible to present a picture that was honest and straightforward not glossing the uh, over uh, problems at all um, but of course Uh, uh, and show that people recover. But, of course, it matters what's the definition of recovery. The way to think about it, I think, very simply, um, Cheryl, is just that it's, it's as with diabetes, for example. There are people that have particularly type 2 diabetes, but type 1 as well. And if you manage it and if you deal with it, in, a, in, in some way that, that's acceptable to you and it works, you go on with your life. We'll get to that. That's where the, the goals come in. If you don't deal with it, as you know, terrible things can happen to people. And that's, that's the way to think about it. It's not that the, it's, if you think about it that way, it's not that the person uh, uh, never has disturbing thoughts again or never hears voices again. Those things, though, you know, like any symptom, people can learn, that's what's so interesting to me, is people can learn to manage the symptoms. So what motivates a person to manage symptoms? If, 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 so, so recovery means you, you're going on with goals in your life. That's part of it. Number two, this, I'm glad you asked this question. You're not using emergency rooms. You're not going to the hospital. You're not causing problems for the police. You're not causing problems for your neighbors. You're just living like anybody else would that nobody would frankly take much notice of. Hmm. But so why would somebody do this? It's because it's, it's, it, people do this. I, I, I'll speak for myself. Maybe you would agree or want to modify <laughs> this. Speaking for myself, I try to take care of my whatever health problems or personal or financial, whatever the issues are, so that I can pursue the things that are important to me in life. One of them was fine. One of my goals was to find out, first of all, could I talk to people who, who had these problems? And secondly, um, do they recover? And, and on and on and on, the recreational things, whatever, uh, things that I like to be able to do in my life, things that, having to do with family and friends in my life. I manage the problems in order to do those things. And that's why it's so important that people um, feel that they can accomplish these things that matter to them. So uh, um, then, they, then, they, then they live, in other words, like, like other people. They aren't using emergency services in the hospitals and so forth uh, that, that people think of as the inevitable, uh, part of the inevitable downhill course of somebody with a serious mental illness.
1: You know, you're reminding me of something, too, which was I heard a story once about a program where people with um, physical illness uh, were highly monitored in this, and I mean that in a particular way, which was that someone visited them a lot. <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and they had a place to live. And uh, they actually did some research about this program that proved that they had saved money, that this particular population, high risk population, was ending up in emergency rooms a lot. And not getting, and then, um, of course, whatever condition it was would be so much more serious and uh, require much more expensive care. So it was actually a money-saving program, but the, the general, and I'm, I'm sure this would be the same for the people that you uh, worked with, uh, you know, that it was actually a benefit. Overall, not just to the person, Absolutely. to everyone to have those things available.
2: In very simple terms, Pathways to Housing, which you mentioned earlier, we may or may not talk about the organization more. They, they really walked the walk. They didn't just talk the talk about wanting... Um, Clinicians to be creative, which meant you don't do it by the book. You do it by what comes up, and the, with the patient directing the care, not the not the professional. But Pathways to Housing justified its existence mm-hmm. with the state office of mental health, who who, who uh, uh, agreed to capitated funding. That means we were paid a certain amount per month for all of our uh, patients, um, for e for each one. They they easily justified the payment they were given by the state. You can imagine how um, important this was because we saved hospital and emergency room services. You you save so much money when people aren't using emergency services that paying for what we were doing was, a you know, it was a no-brainer, actually. And... um, and people, you know, I dealt with landlords, I dealt with superintendents, I dealt with, you know, because people have to, when, people, when you first give people housing, they haven't, some people have. And by the way, that's amazing. Uh, they've been in an institution for so long and they come out and they keep their apartment just fine. That's some people. Mm-hmm. And I would ask people yes. where they learn to do it. And they would say, well, my grandmother taught me when I was a little kid or what, you know, whatever it was. Other people, you, really, you, you put somebody in housing and that doesn't end the story. You want somebody to stay there and to stabilize there and to have their own, have their own life and their independence there. And that means uh, you know, developing habits that, that sustain independence. And, but, but those things are cheap. Even the housing piece turns out to be cheap compared to people using emergency services.
1: So let's give people. Let's let them get to know one of the people we're talking about here. Could you read about Donald M. And um, so we get a little a little flavor of his um, absolutely his recovery.
2: Okay, um, you want me to go through a few a little bits of this or the challenges? Yeah, I'm which? Yeah, just give us a sense of him. Oh, okay. Well, he's a man who, uh, he's one of the more uh, dramatic uh, cases. He, when he came to see me in his early 50s, he had already been for many years suffering from both schizophrenia and from um substance abuse he had stopped using uh, abusive substances but he had there was a, he had been in a mental hospital he had been uh in in trouble with the police at various times he had really hardly had a chance to get started with his life and he finally went to a program called double trouble for both uh, uh, substance abuse and mental illness and um he uh uh was just beginning to, to, to wake up to the possibilities he was, uh, 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 of, of his own goals. Uh, um, he, uh, 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 Prior clinician, uh, b- before I met him, had taken him uh, to a local branch of uh, City College of New York, where he had gotten his uh, general education uh, degree of uh, in a high school equivalency, and they'd found him bright enough that they thought he should apply to college. And he had applied to college, and he was in his, basically, in his sophomore year when when I met him. But I thought now, this man who is very quiet, very modest. Um, doesn't want me messing much with his care and he was going to take medicine that he had figured out worked for him and he didn't want me messing with it, which was fine. Uh, nobody ever asks for these medications who isn't benefiting from it because they, they're not pleasant to take. Uh, but but if, anyway, um, and uh, but I thought, my goodness, how is this guy, his goal was to become a therapist himself. How is he going to manage with people uh, in a way to... to uh, help the, to to serve as a kind of a role model and to help them um, bring uh, themselves uh, out and, and and talk about themselves and so forth isn 't he going to be too shy well a wonderful thing happened his professors at this at the this branch of, of City College, instead of treating him as if he were impaired, whether they had any idea about that or not, they just said, come on, you have to be more uh, outspoken, you have to give more of yourself, you have to talk more, let's go with all this, and he did it sufficiently that he graduated with uh, with high honors from this uh, highest honors, actually, from college, but I still was concerned about how he was going to function as a therapist, and so uh, I sent him to one of these self-help organizations called Howie the Harp. They exist in New York, but they're all over the country too. Um, And where they, uh, uh, in a very low-key way, help people prepare for job interviews, prepare for, you know, whatever the the, um, requirements are on the job. And so... um, this he liked very much, and he he felt he, I never knew when I would make a suggestion like that. You know, it's like you pull it out of a out of a, a box or something. Like, you, uh I didn't know that program well. I'd heard it spoken of well, but I didn't know much about it firsthand. But he uh, was paying attention and he listened and he went there. This is the kind of thing that happens. People, you throw out a lot of things when people ask, uh, uh, and and they say, yeah, I'll take this one, one from column A, one from column B. They're not, they're not. Uh, uh, they're not following your uh, instructions they're thinking about what works for them
1: Absolutely and then sometimes I'm thinking of one particular person who wanted to um, get a better job um, and he was very withdrawn uh, socially and he on his own decided that what he needed to do was to make a commitment to look me in the eyes every time we work together Uh, Mm -hmm. every week when he came that was his goal to look me in the eyes Mm -hmm. and and he and I I wouldn't have thought of that he thought of that himself you know he he kind of said I I can't I can't uh go on interviews for better jobs and I can't interact with my co I can't do any of that if I can't look them in the eye that's, that's uh,
2: the, he, the, the crucial thing I would take from your example there, which which is uh, illustrative, is that he decided he was going to do that. That he exactly. was going to look you in the eye if you say exactly. to him, "Now, why do you you have to practice?" But well, okay, you got it, you got it.
1: Yeah, no, so, I ne- I never even if I had thought about that, I would not have suggested it, because it would have s- felt too um, pushy in a way, you <laughs> know. Uh, it was his hardest thing and I'm going to say you need to look me in the eye no I wouldn't do that it wouldn't have been effective but
2: because he came up with it yeah, you, you show some restraint. I uh, Unfortunately, uh, in, in my profession, a lot of people feel they, they need to direct people and tell people what to do. And in fact, one, one of the hardest things uh, early on, you may have just done this uh, intuitively, but one of the hardest things early on is to convince people that you do not, and for me, anyway, this was an issue, to convince people that I did not have an agenda for them. Because yes. they're, they've, uh, they have heard so many people tell them what to do, you might have to take this, medicine you can't associate with those people you better stop uh, smoking on and on and on you can imagine all these injunctions Um, and uh, they've heard that so much that that's really what they're expecting from me, and so it took some people weeks or months, some people quite a long time before they realized, "Hey, I don't. This guy doesn't have any agenda. He's here just to hear what I'm interested in and to kind of, you know, provide some backup and some encouragement." And and the, so what what would happen then when th- once people get that idea though, then they're off and running. And so um, my my idea was I'm not telling anybody to take anything. I'm, I'm saying – I had people tell me, for instance, they wanted an injection every three weeks, somebody that I didn't even think needed it. But he knew that if he relapsed to drinking – he would become so aggressive. Uh, in an earlier state in his life, this guy nearly killed somebody in a fight, and it scared the daylights out of him. And he was a, a really uh, didn't want that ever to happen. So he said, look, you keep giving me this shot, please, uh, which uh, I, was, uh, you know, I, I, I was pleased to do. But it was, it was something that he wanted. And people, once they um, uh, get the idea that they can take control of their illness and that you're going to support them in that, and you're going to provide them, you know, you give them information and uh, suggestions, but it's up to them, then they start getting around to getting back to their life. Um, this fellow, for instance, who wanted the injection from me all the time uh, every three weeks, uh, didn't want me to change it, <laughs> nothing like that. He, he was interested in reestablishing a relationship with his family. He had an older uh, relative whom he would do odd jobs for, and he just wanted to be back on the track that he had been on before he got into all kinds of difficulties. with the. He was in the Navy, and then he got into... Uh, Diagnosed with illness while he was in the in the military, and it really his life had been uh, very chaotic. I mean, he was living in the subways, he was jumping turnstiles, he was urinating on the on the street. I mean, it was really a a, a, a chaotic life. And at the end, he was back. He was in his old neighborhood. He was talking to his relatives. He was living his uh, um, uh, this life that he had wanted to get back to. And that's it's in order to do that. People will manage their illness kind of with their left hand. One of my ideas, I I don't know how you'd feel about this, but one of my ideas is unless you're dying or in terrible pain, nobody should be thinking about health as their primary concern, no matter what. Mm. Um, uh, they should be thinking about their life and their, what they want, you know, their friends, their family, uh, recreation, whatever, whatever their personal goals are, what they want to learn, what they want to understand about things, uh, people whom they want to help or interact with or be with. And, but once they start figuring out that they can do those things, they manage their illness with their left hand, which is what I think most people do unless, mm-hmm. again, they're, they're in a terrible situation.
1: Well, that that does resonate me since I with me since I work with people in, you know, pretty terrible um, health situations. Since I work with cancer, but um, it's not once once the shock is done and people kind of get some skills at managing, it's not the most important thing that they talk about. It's it's uh, impediments to their continuing to to live their lives. You know, <laughs> that's a great
2: example because is, because if people can deal with cancer in that way, that is, I'll deal with it the best I can, get the best advice, then I can go on with my life. That's the reason people do it. Not, but anyway, that's if they, people could do that sure. with cancer, they can certainly do that with these conditions too.
1: I think so too. So let's let's just continue. Uh, I, I, what I would like to talk about when we come back from our second break is you, because uh, although you didn't altogether feature yourself in your book, um, the way that you interacted with the people you were working with, of course, has a lot to do with their having the freedom to find these solutions, and I would like to delve into that a bit because I think it has something to say to to all of us about how to come at people who are uh, different in almost any way but in this case we're talking about um, kind of different in the mental health so when we thank get you. back that sounds we'll talk like a
2: practical application that. very good yes All
1: right, thank you uh, so during this second break listeners you can go to my website com, the host page at Good Grief and you can get in touch with Bill Tucker that way too back after the break
3: Real life solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Dr. William Tucker, whose work in the community with patients facing serious mental illness is chronicled in his book, Narratives of Recovery from Serious Mental Illness. And uh, I, I mentioned before the break, Bill, that uh, I felt it was important to talk about uh, you and the humanness you were able to bring um uh, you you made me think I just was thinking during the break about a friend of mine he's he's died a few years ago now at a ripe old age. Um, but he worked at Napa State Hospital for his mm-hmm. whole career as a social worker. Mm-hmm. And um, no one else in our circle of uh, most people in our circle of of um, Therapists, we were in a training group together could imagine doing that work, and he loved it, <laughs> you know, um because uh, he felt like those people were real, and he had a big problem with feeling like other people weren't. <laughs> so yeah. he was perfect. He was so yeah. well loved there because of that he's he's kind of an extreme example in my mind of just absolutely uh You know, I thought of it when you said you had been, you had wanted to understand uh, crazy people or, you know, (laughs) uh, that was your original impulse. Um, But not going the fear direction on that takes, takes something because I think we're really socialized to be, um, to be scared yes uh or put yes. off or whatever it might be non accepting um yes. of of those states of mind so how did how did you
2: how did i get there i mean
1: yeah. yeah yeah and what do you feel uh you know a lot of the skills you you exemplified in the book um Certainly, you have a high level of psychiatric skill and uh, skill with medications and all that. But the biggest thing that stood out was um, the quality of humanness uh, that I felt reading about what you you
2: did. Uh, Your example of this friend of yours at Napa State gives me some some, uh, uh, direction forward in this. Um, Because... What you're really saying politely is, uh, how could, why is somebody interested in doing this? Why do you want to do this? I could ask you that about uh, you know, uh, uh, cancer and you know, in the, working with cancer patients in the same way. But let me give you a dramatic example. Uh, in, in part, uh, early on in my training, I got to know a fellow who, did, um, uh, who was a child psychiatrist who worked with kids with fatal diseases, right? Right. And mm-hmm. uh, leukemia, as you can, you know, these things that happen in childhood, and I said to him, I said, how could you possibly do this day in and day out? Isn't it depressing to you? Doesn't it really upset you? And it wasn't frightening, but it was, but worse, and and I couldn't imagine doing work like that. And he said, no, no, um, uh, actually, he said, um, uh, I, I don't get depressed at all. I love the work. I'm I'm cheered by it. Um, and that was a wonderful example to me. I had a teacher once who said, uh, "It's only in your individual quirks that you really develop. Those are the those are the things that power your interests in all your life. So why am I interested in? And in, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's in the words. Everybody's are different again. And uh, so I, one of the things I I was always been interested in communication and in language, uh, and in how. Um, people uh, uh, get across to one another, and I I think that that uh, these things become then worked into what it is you're really interested in in your life. I, I speak a foreign language, I, I, so it was all to me just a matter of trying to. Um, uh, find something that, that meant, that was meaningful to me. And I felt uh, actually like your friend at, at uh, Napa State. I felt that with people with serious mental illnesses, there is something that I find so relaxing and refreshing. Because these are people consistently, I would characterize as, as being, there's not a game that's going on. Mm. Uh, in, in most social situations, we all have to uh, get along. There's a we're 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 trying to create an impression where we're, we're uh, uh, you know wanting to be liked, whatever it is. Uh, and, and but there are games that are being run, and I'm I have difficulty with that. I have more difficulty with with those uh, th- those kind of issues myself. Whereas with the people with serious mental illness, that it just isn't there. They they huh. can be they can be uh, 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 you know. Uh, 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 concerned and hold back for a while, but once they get the idea that you're really wanting to have a conversation, um, uh, and we're going to get to this a little bit about some situations where these things weren't enough and didn't work out, but mostly people, they're just straightforward. Uh, Somebody that's telling you these things that are going on in their mind and that they're thinking about and that trusts you to say those things, it's just, I just find it very... uh, Relaxing and, and enjoyable and interesting, and I enjoy making the contact um, uh, so that it's something that I've just found very, very congenial. Not a whole lot of psychiatrists really like talking to people with serious mental illnesses. I had a teacher once who said, "Oh, it's impossible. You can work with other kinds of illness, but not 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 people who have these really serious and psychotic supposedly. Uh, uh, well, not supposedly. I I think there are so there are psychotic illnesses where people are out of touch with with uh, um, the the reality of what's happening around them. But I don't find those things threatening at all. And I the, the practical side, the positive. Practical side of this is, I wish people would feel that when someone is acting strangely, they're not dangerous. Uh, mm-hmm. Often, uh, uh, that's that's not what's going on. I when I, I raised my kids who grew up in Washington Square Park, I said, if somebody looks uh, like they're acting strangely or they're Dressed dirty, or they're filthy, or they're or they're uh, whatever it is. Don't worry about those people. When I'm talking about when my kids were little, I said if somebody looks like me, dressed in a business suit, and comes up to you and says, um, you know, I want to talk to you, you better run. (laughs) I I, I just feel like the the, the, the people who are who are ill are they're 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 mostly mostly when you think about it, even logically, just logically, forget your uh, own
1: experience. People who are who are who are uh, mentally ill want to be left alone. So the most you well, and, are- and actually, and actually, they are um, often victims of crime, and um, you know, many uh, you got it. Many homeless people here who are largely have some kind of diagnosis um, because it. what happened out here is everyone got thrown out on the street uh, at <laughs> some point. Oh yeah. Uh, they get killed. They get beat up. They get—you right. know—they're—they're—they are in much more danger than the people walking down the street past them. And in, in my experience. much more likely
2: to be preyed upon than to prey on anybody else. They really will. It's just—it's just—it's—it's it's, it's such a rare event. That's—that's that's not what I would worry about. And I—that um, gets me. We were going to say just a word about. Not everybody recovers at least not in the time that I had. You know, this is all time-limited, right. too. And right. um, I, I my, in my experience, half to two-thirds of the people did. But I. there are people who are, you, you don't want to say that if even though that's the the anticipated outcome for most people, that everybody should, because that implies that if you aren't in recovery from your illness, you, it's somehow a personal failing, and that is just not fair. There are some people who are just overwhelmed if the timing isn't right. Um, I talk uh, later in the book about a fellow who was both mentally ill and substance abusing, and he had this terrible traumatic experience. He had his mother had saved money for him to go to, to, for his higher education. I don't know if he would have met college, but certainly a technical school and so forth. A sweet, dear, loyal, uh, honest fellow. And he had taken that money and uh, uh, bought cocaine with it. And used and, and, and it, as he put it, broke his mother's heart and she died of a heart attack. And so, mm. you know, talk about loss and grieving and recovery It was just so, he could not get over what he had done to her. And because he was not using drugs anymore, he felt it all uh, intensely. And uh, there was a whole sequence in which he... um, one, uh, was was doing better and lost some weight, and then he stopped smoking, and then he gained the weight back, and then he felt defeated, and then he changed his medication, and it just it was just there was just too much for him to deal with at that time, and so he didn't get to pursue his goals of uh, he wanted to become an X-ray technician and so forth, which he would be quite capable of, and at some future point. That may well indeed have happened. I was just there. There was just a, a slice of of life there, but I, I was in other situations too that would probably frighten some people, but didn 't me i uh, you know you, when you go into people 's homes, some of these people were uh, dealt with uh, with uh, drug dealers on the street, and i, I uh, one patient told me that another fellow had somebody who was a drug dealer in his apartment who was armed. So I just walked in. I said, let me handle this. And I walked into the apartment myself, and the, the drug dealer who was supposedly had a gun helped me get the guy dressed and get him out of there. And I said, we're shutting down this apartment. And as I was leaving, the, one of the drug dealers said, you know, there was another person still in the apartment in the bathtub with the, with the uh, curtain closed. And I said, well, I'm glad I didn't know about it. I don't want to surprise anybody. That isn't what we do or and okay. so the whole thing where she helped me, this woman helped with the gun, helped me put the guy's shoes on to get him out of there, to get him into a safer place. But again, this was somebody that wasn't ready yet to give up drinking and to and to and to get on on with his life. And there, you know, you have to be prepared for that too. And the level of comfort that you feel going into people's houses and into the community that varies. Not everybody has to be quite as as uh, oh, I don't know how to put it, brash as I, I guess you'd say I was in, in these situations. But uh, um, I would. Uh, it was. It was it 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 allowed me to express my personality. And that's what I appreciated about it, about the setting, about the people I was working with. And uh, I was uh, uh, i I just felt fulfilled and excited every day to, to go and and uh, get a chance to do this work,
1: and that's uh, led to you,, um, you know, in uh, uh, you know, basically in retirement, writing a book. Coming on shows like mine to talk about it, you know, it's been obviously a passion uh, exactly of yours right. to get this message out to people. <laughs> and I appreciate that because um, even people who are working in that field don't always write books and come on radio shows to, to talk about it. And, well, um uh, there's much more conversation, of course, about mental health and mental illness than certainly when I started, and definitely when you started, you know. Yep. But, um,. But still, the message about um, people trying to live in the community and, and what we can all do to make that a, a, a better prospect for people, I think, is very, very important and maybe can reduce some of the potential grief, um, yeah. you know, the unnecessary yeah. losses that come along with um, facing a mental illness. Uh, yes, some, one of the some maybe that, are... that happens. One, one of the things that happens, when and we do just have a couple to... of minutes. Uh, just we, okay. we, are running out of time. So, I, I want what I want to do is thank you for being with me. I've really enjoyed the conversation, oh, and uh, I hope thanks you'll me. keep me up to date on, on um, you know your book and and uh, how it does out there in the world. Uh, thanks very much. So thanks and again I, for being here.
2: Thank you, Cheryl, for having me and Voice of America.
1: And listeners, you can be sure and check out that book, Narratives of Recovery from Serious Mental Illness. It's it's um, easy to find online. And if you want to reach Bill, just reach out to me. Next week, I'll have Phyllis Schachter, whose husband opted to suspend food and drink as a means to a peaceful death as his Alzheimer's reached a critical stage. She describes their experience in her book, Choosing to Die. This has been good grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for good grief. Please come back next Wednesday at five p m. Eastern time, two p m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host Cheryl Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week..